Welcome to Weapon of Choice, a podcast where creatives across mediums give us insight into the weaponry of their art. Each episode, you'll be hearing an interview with an artist who uses their art as a weapon of choice for social change and disruption, visibility and justice, cultural critique and resistance, among other things that ignite social consciousness and community action. These artists will tell us about their journeys toward the battles they are fighting, how they design, sharpen, and develop their artistic weaponry to strike a blow against injustice in the world. Welcome back to Weapon of Choice Podcast. Yes, we are well into season two and we're excited to bring you another interview today. My name is Tommy Franklin. I'm Andrew Benda. And uh, we're feeling good, right? We just um, saw a couple of couple of good films. We're gonna probably see a couple more this weekend. Sorry to bother you, man. If you haven't seen that, go see it ten times. And then you know, just to relax, we went and saw the new Mission <laughs> Impossible movie last night. That was fun. Um, yeah, I'm a retired community organizer, but now I like to organize these movie outings and get groups of people to go out and see something because we all like to put put um things off and it's just a good excuse to you know people are like uh yeah i'll go to a movie because like i don't really got to talk to people or be in a movie and then you just like after the movie just like hey y'all want to go get something to eat and then you just get you get people together and you get to talking about important stuff naturally and then it just so happens that some of these films coming out this summer um a lot of them created by black filmmakers and writers are Worthy of so many long conversations, films such as Sorry to Bother You. Sorry to Bother You. Don't read anything about it if you can. Just go. I, the, my strongest recommendation of everyone just needs to see this movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as w- a lot of the movies we've been seeing this summer, Tommy, and some of the ones coming out, it's like, this is, do they know about Weapon of Choice yet? Have, uh, have they? Can we get them on <laughs> the get, show? Yeah. Can we get Boots on the show? Can we get Boots Riley on the show? If you know him, holler at him. Heck yeah. Can we get David and uh, Raphael from Blind Spotting on the show? If you know, we're him? available. Holler at him. We travel. We pack light. No, no uh, check bags. We'll still have what we need, microphones and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to see. I'm trying to see more movies in the theaters. Um, it's just fun, and it's like it never gets old for me. You can give me all the Netflixes and Hulus and Amazon Primes you want. I'm gonna get to the theater. I went and saw the new Denzel movie, Equalizer Two. Yeah, how was that? Yeah, I think it was. But be- I don't really remember the first one. I remember enjoying it enough, but I know that Equalizer Two was great. It has little messages and whatever, and it was like just black as fuck for no reason. <laughs> Cause it's just a, it's an action movie of like whatever. It's like a version of a Liam Neeson film, and you know, but Fuqua directed him and Denzel been making stuff. Uh, those brothers, mm-hmm. and it's just like it's just, throughout the movie, it's just random black ass shit that just really doesn't have anything to do with the story of the plot. <laughs> and it's awesome because it's Uncle Denzel, <laughs> you know. I've been in a great. Uh, I'm not often in an action movie uh, like. Uh, I guess the mood to watch action films, but I just recently finally watched John Wick and then watched Atomic Blonde, and I, it's just <laughs> I'm I'm down to just have some fun. We watched Mission Impossible. Last That's time. right. And up next, you need to watch The Raid Redemption. If y'all haven't seen that, after Sorry to Bother You, I'll go if you if you're down for a good action flick. Raid The Raid Redemption, and then watch the sequel to that, and then watch John Wick too. 
<laughs> if you if you're trying to get that action fix. Also, though, we last weekend we just saw uh, Rafael Sadiq came through to Minneapolis. My favorite musician of all time, you know, Rafael's O Town, O Town. How do you pick um, from a catalog that? I mean, yeah. there was a point where he was just like doing songs a cappella for that people were shouting out because he's like, I can't, I can't get to all of them. Yeah, <laughs> it was great because he hadn't been here in like seven years, and he does a such a tight set. Like he is on point. And he loosened up and he played like three new songs off the album that comes Those out. Those were, I cannot yeah. wait. What, uh, January that, that album yeah, comes out? Yeah. And His new tracks were fantastic. Those were great. Uh, and he's coming back to Minneapolis. We hope to get him on the show when he comes back to Minneapolis. Or since he's from Oakland and two of the dopest films of the summer uh, coming straight out of Oakland and just all the activism, all that history there. Uh, I think we need to make an Oakland weapon of choice trip, Andrew. I think it needs to happen, I'm down. and I think it, uh, you know, usually pop in, pop out, because that's all we can, you know. Actually, yeah, we pop in for t- two days to record interviews when we're in L.A. and New York, and really, that's like it's a bit of a stretch. It's kind of all we can afford. But the beautiful thing is, we wouldn't have been able to afford it. That's right. If it weren't for, we have ten listeners donating monthly to the podcast which is helping finance some of that travel. It's helping finance our production. It's helping finance, you know, we you know we got buttons and stickers that we like to give away and a little bit of merch, you know what I'm saying? We're working on we're working on some limited edition stuff. But uh yeah, like we would not have been able to get on those airplanes without help from the listeners who are donating to the show as sustaining weapon of choice podcast members through our patreon and uh if you want to join them we've got 10 people donating we want to triple that number we want to get 30 and we think if we can get 30 people by the end of the summer that are sustaining members of the show on our patreon page we can totally widen um our reach in terms of the the kind of artists that we get on the places that we're able to go to uh we are you know, Tommy and I are in a hundred percent on making the show the best we possibly can, and we can do it because I'm. I trust. I have all my trust in Andrew as a partner, and as we like produce what? any content, really. And uh, you know, I mean, people are like texting me. They're texting Andrew. I'm gonna like make sure you follow the Instagram because I'm gonna be screenshotting some uh, texts that we get about certain episodes that people listen to that are moving them, that are heartfelt, that they're that are really like got them thinking. And some of these people even text us, you need to get so-and-so on the show. And like, whether it's a like high notoriety name or just someone they know in the community, a lot of the people that they recommend are not in Minneapolis, are not in St. Paul. They're in Cleveland, Ohio. They're mm-hmm. in Atlanta, Georgia. They're in New Orleans, you know, and we got to get there. You know, we, you know, we work our odd jobs and we do what we can, but... You know, we're really going to make, you know, the podcast is definitely growing that's and that's right. good news. And it's all because of the listeners. And as we grow, we're going to just keep going hard. And that takes a lot of work. Never stop. And that takes, you know, it takes time and effort that we are 1000% committed to because we wake up every day passionate about making this content for y'all to hear. So, yeah, if you have it in you to become a monthly donor, do so right now. And all you got to do is go to the website www.patreon.com forward slash weapon of choice podcast. That's www.patreon.com 
Facebook.com forward slash Weapon of Choice Podcast. And there, it'd be quick and easy. You can join the community members, the Weapon of Choice community team who are supporting us. And we really appreciate your support. And please keep sharing. Make sure you're subscribed on iTunes if you use it there. Make sure you give us that five-star rating and a review. Let me tell you, all of this goes a long way. And your dollars we will put to such great use to make sure this show stays on the up and up and gets better and better and grows along with you out there. Here's the thing. If you listen to the show, if you got something out of one episode, maybe you've listened to every episode and you get something out of every interview, please consider to be a donating member. $1 helps, $2 helps. We got some $3 donors. We got some $5 donors. We've got some we we've got some 10, we've got some $20 donors. Any little bit helps. So if the, if you if you want to see this show continue and if you get something out of this show, please consider being a sustaining member. Yeah, check it out. Um and we look forward to we look forward to more engagement with you as you uh jump on the team. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. And now we are happy to get into today's episode. And we Who sat we down. Oh, oh, we had a good time. We had a good time. We were in L.A. Oh. And one of the people we sat down with, now, you know, we sat down with Misha Grimm, who's an artist, who's an activist, who founded Black Lives Matter in Minneapolis, Say that. Say that <laughs> who throws and hosts amazing parties that are more than about the alcohol and the atmosphere or the music in the atmosphere, or the people in the atmosphere, the vibe she puts on and cultivates in Minneapolis, and now currently in Los Angeles, and back and forth, because she's got so much love for South Minneapolis where she grew up. That, that culture that she helps cultivate around communities who are about that action, but also about healing, and about living their best life, and having fun, oh my goodness. And like her creative talents are just, going to rise and rise as she, you know, as she explores herself and where she wants to grow creatively. We are so behind it mm-hmm. because she is brilliant and we can't wait for you to hear this conversation and, you know, stay, stay tuned for more of what she's going to be up to. So we sat down with Misha in Los Angeles. Well, first we, uh, you know, we got some street food and we were all kicking it outside before we went in to do the interview. And then we went into the incorporated, the incorporated, but the O is instead of zero. It's a fashion line, a clothing line that is dope as hell. They're doing amazing stuff. We sat down in the incorporated studios with our friends there to do this interview. And we had a really good time. We really, you know, and Misha was a great host in terms of Los Angeles for the time we spent with her. And this was a fun conversation and a real conversation and a deep conversation and an important one. And we talk about it all. Let's do it. Hi, everybody. I'm Misha Grimm, and um, I am a bad bitch. <laughs> uh, I'm an activist. I founded Black Lives Matter in Minneapolis. I'm a DJ, um, an artist, and uh, now I'm trying to become a filmmaker. Uh, how, how old were you when you realized you're not normal? Um, hmm. Well... You know, there's like, you don't really become self-aware of it all the time, but then you look back and you're like, oh yeah, like this is definitely, you know. But as a child, I grew up, I didn't like getting my hair done or anything. And I just kind of like let my mom just kind of do whatever. Um, So I got mistaken for a little boy all the time. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I look back now and I'm like, oh, that definitely like partially shaped how I view myself and like my sexual identity and whatever. So that's kind of like at the youngest age, like thinking about, okay, the fact that people could sometimes tell I was a girl, sometimes call me a boy was like really uh, definitely different for me. Um, in terms of like actual like political understanding, um, I'll say when I was 10 years old, fifth grade, um, Bush became president and I had a teacher who put up the popular votes on the chalkboard because people had chalkboards back then. Um, he goes, who do you guys think won? And we were all like, duh, Al Gore. And he's like, skirt, skirt, wrong answer. <laughs> and we were shook. We were so, we were so shook. <laughs> right. Like, we just didn't understand, um, which led me to write a five-page five paper on abolishing the electoral college in fifth grade. Um, so that's kind of what I look at where I was like, okay, I was really out here. Like, Man, I wasn't able to write a five-page paper in college. Shit. That was like the big thing. You know, that was like the big thing to, to leave elementary school was like this big paper. Yeah, I spent five pages like, no, nah, we got to abolish this thing. <laughs> so what city did that childhood take place in? I grew up in Minneapolis, Southside. Southsider. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that uh, abolished electoral college. Uh, maybe everyone needs to read that paper. To, you know, I need maybe to get everyone it up. needs to read that paper today. I need today. to get up. I think it's still. I think it stands. I think it still stands. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's that thing. Oh. It was well researched. You still have it? You didn't yeah, lose I do. It? <laughs> I absolutely do. <laughs> I'm sure your teacher is always gonna remember you. Oh, <laughs> uh, I, I have no idea, but you know what? Every teacher, not every teacher, but almost every teacher I had has really, I think, helped me form this like political understanding without me even, you know, being aware. They. They kind of always had this like undertone in their lessons, I think, that um, definitely helped me understand how to empathize and, and how to understand um, politics from a different point of view, you know? Yeah, and a lot of people look back and just see things through the lens of it being simply a memory. And uh, we're fortunate for those of us who might be able to naturally think back to t certain times and then say, I'm looking at myself at that age. Who is that person? And mm -hmm. How did that person have to do with who I am today? And, yeah. uh, and if there's a political lens to that, mm -hmm. that's why we love talking to people like you. That's really beautiful. That's a beautiful way to put it. I've been, uh, I've been thinking about that a lot lately. It's hard work to do that. It's hard work to look back at these memories with that lens mm -hmm. because it's almost emotional work. It's almost like you have to look back at these moments outside of, how they may be triggering or outside of how they may make you feel a little dissettled and be like, but appreciate them for how they, how they shaped you, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And then usually there's all these characters to consider other than the character of self that you're looking back at. Because if you're looking back at yourself, you're like, mm -hmm. oh, who affected me in that moment? Mm -hmm. Do I even talk to this person today? How mm -hmm. do I feel about this person today? Mm -hmm. Did I hate them them and love them now? Did I love mm -hmm. them them and hate them now? Mm -hmm. um, how did like, stand out just for you in your mind stand out characters when you were young kind of like shape some of your ambitions to become like a, you know a powerful person one day mm. um well you know there was good and bad moments i remember once 
being seven or eight years old and um, being in the playpen at McDonald's and there was like a, a white baby crying um, and she was stuck in the, in, the, in the playpen and I was trying to help her get out um, and her mom like came in and she was like don't touch my baby like da -da -da -da, and like yelled at me and like snatched her child from me and I remember just being so confused I was like mom I was just trying to help that girl and she was like I know she, she was like I know you were she was like you don't need to stress about it and I'm like and it's like these little moments where you start to realize like people are not perceiving me the way I perceive myself in this world, you know? Um, um, I remember when I realized that I was like, as a mixed person, I was never gonna be considered a white person. Um, I was walking to, I missed the bus one day. I was walking to school and uh, the police picked me up 30 feet from school, like literally I'm crossing the street onto school property. How old? I was 15, 16. Um, but you know, I had sweatpants on, like a red t-shirt. Like, you know, I was I was wearing what they would consider like thug attire. What they didn't know was I was wearing my Team Read, my library volunteer shirt. Oh. <laughs> they, like, like, nah, but they, they picked me up. And then um, when they picked me up, I was like, y'all, I'm just trying to go take this test. Like, I just missed the bus. Like, why are you gonna take me out of school when it's obvious I'm walking to school? They're like, nah, I just get in the car. Like, and they get, I get in the car and right when we get in the car, they'd start driving and my white guy friend's walking to school, crossing the street. I'm like, so y'all gonna pick him up? Mm. And they were like, Oh no no no! He's like officially on school property now. We can't we can't get him. I was like, I was like, too little did they know my mother was gonna raise hell in that bitch. Um, uh. But I just remember being like, oh snap! Okay, again, this is another moment where this is you know I'm perceiving myself one way, like a studious person trying to get to class, whatever. And they're like, now nah, we're just gonna waste your fucking time today. Mm -hmm. Like we're gonna waste your time today and make you as unproductive as possible when you're trying to be productive. And let's talk about, so you're 15, right? So there's like, there's encounters with police, no matter how old you are, but there's, you know, for a lot of people just witness police doing harmful things. Mm -hmm. and hopefully they'd never happen to them. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, mm -hmm. but we're, so you're a teenager. Do I remember when we were 12, 13, Buddy Carl's bike on a 34th and James, Northside. Mm -hmm. Buddy Carl's bike gets stuck, like we were like down the street because they, next to someone else's house, his bike gets stolen. There's three of us, four of us. We see his bike get stolen. We're like little athletes. So we like, we gonna catch this. Yeah. We take off running after the dudes on our bike. The cops turn around the corner, yam all of us up. Stop. Throw all four of us, none, none of us was older than 14. Mm -hmm. All four of us like sideways, like sardines yeah, in the back of the cop in the car. fucking cop cars. Yeah, All yeah. the time they did that for truancy. And cases. we're sitting there telling like, that guy just stole our bike, we're chasing him, the suspect, the actual suspect. Mm -hmm. And they say, we don't give a fuck. This is Northside cops. Yeah. We don't give a fuck. But okay, but we're teenagers. Yeah. So how is that, how is, what's it, you know, what was the difference of knowing police do harmful stuff to our peers and our parents and our loved ones, witnessing it, seeing it on the news, but as a youth, how is it being actually handled by the cops? Right. Because that's just not, it's like the, it's the craziest thing in the world. Yeah, 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 yeah. It is, it's a, it's a mind fuck the first time it happens to you. And you feel very helpless because you're like, where, where is my advocate in this situation? Or like, who do I call in this situation? And most times there isn't one for a lot of people. Um, and so I think that 
kind of helped that started helping me like think more critically about how I can how I can be an advocate and I remember like maybe a year later the same thing happened to some of the younger girls that I kind of like mentored a little bit or like hung out with and I remember one of them calling me crying like they just put me in the back of this police car with four other kids took me downtown like da 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 and me being like okay I'm gonna do whatever I can to help you but also like being 16 or 17 and be like what the fuck do I do you know what I'm saying like I just saw my mom call them and snap on them like I'm gonna do what I can to get I was like get their badge number blah 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 but it's like that's what made me be like okay we really need to start looking at systemically what's happening more more often because like how much can we do on a case-by-case basis right like Mm. there's not enough time for that did you have when your mind started to take you know a radical shape when you were young and then when your voice um i don't know your personality was then but i know like we follow you right yeah because of your voice so when you're developing that voice out loud amongst friends or peers or cousins or mm-hmm. brothers or sisters or whoever, mm-hmm. were people like, back to like, you're not normal, so to speak, were people like, hey, like, you tripping with all that st- stuff, you critical, critically thinking about yeah, all that? Yeah, absolutely. Like, were there people Yeah, dude, I was like, tight with? You? Like, I, I had a really interesting, like, growing up in school, I was actually talking to my aunt about this last night, because she was like, you seem like a kind of person who, like, was popular in high school but also like a weirdo and i'm like (laughs) i'm like that i think that's true like they're like i i got along with everybody i was one of those people who could like sit at different lunch tables every day and kick it with whoever and i wasn't aware of that until like i had a teacher in high school like point that out to me Mm -hmm. um i just really liked learning about people and and like i never fit in anywhere so it was like it was like I don't want to sit at this fit, table. Yeah, today. I want to fit in everywhere, and right. even the clique of people that I really spent time with in high school. Like my mom one day was laughing, like y'all are like a motley ass crew. Like, like we were all like very different. You know, it was basically the group of people who didn't want to be like in a group, yeah. in a clique. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was I was one of those people who I played like lacrosse and and all that shit, but then I also played Quidditch at lunch. Mm. <laughs> and like, you know, I did like the plays and I was in math class, but I also was like skipping school, getting high with motherfuckers. And you know, I was just trying to do, I was just trying to be a part of everything kind of, I guess. And it comes natural to me to want to know about people and, and want to understand people. Um, Maybe it's a subconscious like power. Th- I have no idea, but I think I'm, I think I, I think I have a lot of personality. So, sure. <laughs> so you know, mm-hmm. kicking it with different people is almost like catering to those personalities. And what are the ways that you gravitate to all these versatile spaces you're able to like walk through and exist in confidently? What, what sends you down? Like, what? How do you gravitate towards one particular group in terms of like? I'm curious about this, about these people. I'm going to find out. Maybe, you know. Well, I'll say this. I'm half white man, which means I walk into spaces like a white man does, which any any place I am, I feel like I'm supposed to be there. (laughs) (laughs) Like any place I go. Did you really have to wait for that, (laughs) y'all? You know, you know what I'm saying? But I think a lot of people don't learn to feel entitled to the space they take up 
you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and to feel, you know, justified in the space that they take up um, because so many times people feel like outsiders in, in spaces. And um, I, I just gravitate towards what I feel has good energy and what I feel like when I feel like people care about each other, when I feel like people are um, looking out for each other, that's that's like the main thing. You know what I'm saying? And did, did people ever get uncomfortable and try to wrestle back th that space that they thought they were entitled to above you? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> would that, how'd that go down? Um, I mean, I, I feel like I'm kind of formidable. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't know. I mean, to the point where, you know, when I met President Obama, um, several people commented at the end of the meeting, like, I can't believe you corrected Obama about how to pronounce your name in the way that you did it. Like, they were like, he, like, I remember DeRay just being like, I can't believe you said that. Like, <laughs> and, and, cause I was just like, he was like, Micah Grimm, thank you. And I was like, it's actually, it's Misha. It's pronounced Misha. And everybody was just like, I was like, I want Obama to know my name. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not, and I have, I have mentors that taught me that it's important that people know your name and know how to say your name. Um, Shaka always told me that because I remember the first time I ever emailed Shaka, I spelled it S H O C K A, like Sophie Shaka. <laughs> and he was like, no, ma'am. <laughs> um, so that, that's the lesson he taught me that I, I have since uh, and always try to try to reinforce. But yeah, it, when I was in that room, I felt a lot of people just giving up their power in the situation because um, it was an intimidating meeting. We're sitting next to cops. We're sitting next to, like, you know, police advocates and all this stuff, and uh, I get it. But I was like, at the end of the day, there's a, there's a reason why I'm supposed to be. There's a reason why I got asked to be here, um, and that's for me to say what I need to say. Um, they didn't have me come here to just do nothing. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. You don't. And and I'm and I'm done with that mindset, like, of being afraid to speak up because any place I'm supposed to. Any place I'm at is where I'm supposed to be, mm -hmm. which means my voice is supposed to be there. You know what I'm saying? Were there any, before that Obama meeting, were there any, was there any particular mentor that helped groom you to really own whatever space you step in? Absolutely, uh, Shaka Macaulay. Yeah. Um, he's a, a huge presence in my life, a really positive influence in my life. Um, me and him have traveled together um, and I've seen how, uh, how he enters rooms and I see how people respond to him and you know the level of respect that he demands from people um, at every point. And I've always thought that it was really admirable. Uh, and that's the kind of person I wanna be, you know what I'm saying? I don't wanna be like hated, I don't wanna be feared. Like I don't give a fuck if that's what's happening, but you're gonna respect me at the end of the mm -hmm. day, you know what I'm saying? Um, so. Uh, yeah, I would definitely say Shaka's that person. Um, yeah, he's dope. I, it's funny because he's got, he might not like that I would say this, but it's funny because Shaka's like one of the goofiest, funniest people I know. But when people meet him, they're so intimidated by him. Mm. And that's something that like we ended up relating to a bunch because I was like, when, when we started hanging out, I was like, I'm not intimidated by you. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you don't like scare me, like nothing like that. And, and people tend to be kind of intimidated by me sometimes too. So I just really related to that. So we ended up like really vibing because he was like, oh, you like, 
you like get it like you don't like it. like you know what i'm saying yeah you're not falling for the whoop de wham you know um hmm. yeah you're talking about fostering that political lens mm-hmm. at a, like a, at a young age do you have any like moments that stick out or stories or like particular memories that are like when you look back you see like oh shoot this is another one of those moments where whether that be a teacher or another or uh, you know a peer mm-hmm. it was that community that like yeah. brought that lens out yeah um i would definitely say that that teacher that put the you know the popular votes on the wall was huge for me um and and around that time i also had a teacher you remember like the early aughts you remember people really liked rhinestones and like bandanas and stuff and i remember i like hand stoned this bandana that i was super geeked to wear to school like all these rhinestones on it and stuff and uh i got in trouble for wearing it to school i got like i got like in big trouble uh (laughs) for wearing it to school and i went to class and i asked my teacher like why can't i wear it it's cute you know (laughs) and she's like it's so stupid she's like it's associated with gangs but she's like i know you're not a gang member like (laughs) you're in fifth grade <laughs> like <laughs> you know like she was like it's dumb you can wear it in my class and i didn't fully understand what she was saying at the time right right but um i get now that it was like this whole perception of like how who i am or who these children are and um and then i remember i don't i don't know how i started thinking about this but i remember thinking uh really young maybe like a second or third grade like Oh, the kids in student council get to decide what we do with money. So I'm about to, I'm about to be on student council because I want to know where this money's going. I'm trying to have more pizza parties, y'all. <laughs> another, we need another vending machine on the yeah, third floor. Yeah, like, yeah, it's like we need Fruitopia in this bitch. Y'all remember Fruitopia? Oh, yeah. oh, <laughs> do you remember that, that like neon colored oh, quote unquote juice? Um, yeah, I, so I, I remember getting involved in like. Uh, I guess I was beginning involved in politics. Let's <laughs> get it. Uh, student council. Pizza and fruitopia. <laughs> yeah, uh, that I ran on a platform of more fruitopia. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, and then uh, going into middle school, I think people just started. Re- I think some of my teachers started realizing that I had a, a strong voice, um, and so they suggested that I join citywide student council, which led me to a lot of different leadership. Um, conferences and trainings all through middle school and high school. I got to travel um, the country with other students of color, like mostly students of color, people from all public schools in Minneapolis, you know, Patrick Henry, um, North, uh, South. Like, I I still have friends that I met. I still hang out with people that I met in um, in those rooms and that also led me to be connected to different parts of the city without like having to leave my neighborhood you know like mm-hmm. when you don't have a car you have a bike right. you're not biking to northeast from no, the no, south no. side like you don't even have the conceptual idea to oh, do that yeah. you know um and so i that's also how i became began began to be aware of these other areas of the city and what's going on at these schools because i was going to freaking i went to washburn for a little bit I went to De La Salle. Um, I graduated from Southwest. Yeah. You know, all those schools are pretty, yeah, you know what I'm saying? And then I'm hearing from my friends at North, like, oh, well, once a month they do a random, like, check on everybody, and there's just drugs and, like, 
mm-hmm. knives and shit thrown outside of the school because and and we don't get to go to class for half the day because they're they're literally searching every single person in the school and I'm just sitting there like what the f-? like they're wasting y'all time y'all like edge your time for learning to search y'all and then keep you in the gym after they search you like what you know and so you just that that led me to think more critically about stuff and then by the time I I was about to leave Southwest, I had written a a really long research paper, like a 10-page research paper on um, how the city had purposely been segregated and how our school systems were segregated. (laughs) Uh, And we had the superintendent, Bill Green at the time, he's this black man with this afro, came to my class one day, you know, for some softball questions. And I came with this man hard as fuck. I was like, so why is my school uh, 85% white in an area that is 25% Latino? Like, like I'm coming at this man, this man started sweating. He had like, paper towel on his forehead. Like, I'm like, I'm just trying to understand why my classroom is entirely white besides me. And why, like, why we have kids doing this at this school and not, and he was like, I was like, that's cool. I'm going to quote you in this paper too, boy. (laughs) Like, um, yeah, so that's when I I was, by that time I was, it was was done. I was reading papers on how Bush stole the election. I was, you know, reading books on left-wing politics and whatever, Noam Chomsky, blah, blah, blah. And I was really hungry for knowledge. And everyone thought I was a conspiracy theorist. (laughs) (laughs) Was there ever a moment where you were like, Am I sure I want to be doing this, or do I just want to go? Yeah. Be a teenager. Oh hell yeah! I wasted hella time. <laughs> wasted so much time. But um, you know, I don't know if this is true for you guys, but in Minneapolis, I feel like going to middle school in Minneapolis is like high school for most people. Mm. So when I was in middle school, you know, I quit dancing ballet. I I quit playing hockey. I started going to the mall every weekend. I wasted money on dumbass outfits from the rave. Um, <laughs> that was a real store. Um, yeah, I mean, I did that. And I and I um, definitely like had some experiences that I think most people wait till high school or college to have. And so by the time I was in high school, I was pretty much over. I was over that whole, mm. let's be cool. Like, I want to look cool type shit, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, I look back as it like, you know, I, I matured really quickly and I also think I wasted so much time, but it's like, I got to do that ahead of everybody else. Cause I got to college and there were people who were just acting a fool. And I'm sitting there wondering like, why are you doing And it's like, oh, I was fortunate to kind of experience that already. And better for worse. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But now I get to be kind of the mature one in the room. Um, mm-hmm. Cause I'm not really entertaining the drama and, Bullshit anymore. Um, so, like, you start to politicize at a moment when not necess- it's not necessarily that people are straight up politicizing you left and right, but it sounds like you're coming into a moment of, like, I'm really fucking intelligent and I see what's going on and I'm connecting dots, mm-hmm. but then you become vocal because you're formidable and always have been. And uh, mm-hmm. what, what, uh, how did your family uh, react to that? Your parents? Um, so, my mother is black and from St. Louis. My father is white and from like Apple Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, and my grandmother was super, super political. Um, she was an organizer in St. Louis and she was one of those people that, you know, 
you had to know her if you wanted to get elected, if you wanted to get votes in certain areas. Um, she started like the first labor radio show in St. Louis. Um, has has worked with President Reagan. I don't know why. I still don't know why she did that. <laughs> I don't know what was going on there. But um, you know, she she was also a very formidable woman and a very mm. political woman. So. Um, I didn't just, you know, it wasn't just these outside forces. I did grow up with this kind of lens too. And so my mom, my mom wanted to be like a senator when she was growing up. Um, and so she definitely had like a political view. I think I'm way more left than her and way more, you know, way more eccentric than her, than her points of views, but she still fostered, fostered things in me. And same with my dad, for my dad being a white man from Apple Valley, he, almost all of his friends were mostly black and he was very um he took it upon himself to make sure that like culturally i understood my blackness mm. uh, and so providing you with like books or show, we would watch movies and yeah. you know and we would talk about stuff sometimes like he would just be like hey don't go there like they don't he was like they don't like black people and they don't go in there or whatever like even like you know later growing up being like oh i'm about to go to this bar with my friends or i'm about to go here He's just like, no, they don't let my homies in there. Like, don't go, you know. Mm. Um, so uh, they were always like that. And even now, I think there was a time where uh, I was like super anti everything, you know, I had all these piercings, my hair was all these different colors of shit. And I think that was like really challenging for them because it, you know, that went along with mental illness and depression and anxiety that they could not understand at all. Um, especially, you know, when you're learning all these things and not, there's no one else to really talk to about these things. Back then, every, everybody's woke now. When nobody woke five, six years ago, nobody was trying to talk about anything 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, all that stuff comes, comes with it. And so they had a hard time with that, but, you know, I think now they're in a place where they understand better where I was coming from and we have a better relationship, working relationship. And, and we're, we're like homies, it's kind of funny. We're homies. I, well, the first time I went to strip club was with my dad. There you go. You know what I'm saying? Like we we have like a very interesting relationship, but I know now that I definitely have their respect. I know now that they're like really proud of me and what mm. I'm doing, and that was a lot. That was a lot of my motivation growing up. You know. Yeah, yeah. What's your weapon of choice, and what battles are you fighting? Ooh, what is my weapon of choice? Or weapons? Mm, 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 mm. Well, my weapon of choice is rearranging the matrix. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm not going to elaborate on that whatsoever. <laughs> hey, y'all just better keep up. <laughs> How are you rearranging the future mm. creatively? Mm. How do you want to? Um, we have a lot of lessons to learn as humans. And I think that there are lessons that we knew a long time ago. And it's kind of like relearning and unlearning. Um, and what I want to create with my, with my artwork is a space for people to feel impressions by the softer things that like trigger us. Like we're constantly triggered by traumatic things. And I really haven't found the word opposite of trigger. Maybe it's nurturing, I don't really know. But, you know, something that triggers you 
calmly, something that's gentle for your spirit to take on, you know what I'm saying? Versus this always like, we're constantly bombarded with like lights, sounds, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. People yelling, even if they're not yelling at you, you hear them outside yelling or horns honking and ambulances and all this stuff. And it's like, we let that stuff tense us up so easily, but we don't let the birds like yeah. singing release some of that tension. We don't let the flowers or, you know, whatever. We don't let those moments have the same impact on us as we let the, the more hard, more difficult ones. Um, and so that's what I, I want to create with my artists, space where there's like, you know, there's some, there's a different type of, of, of impression. And um, what goes with that is feeling comfortable, right? And like feeling like yourself. Uh, I 100% believe that the way we win this war, the way the resistance is like, actual you know true to his cause is that every person brings their real true self to the movement i think people being more themselves is way more powerful than anything else we could do because the more yourself you are the more joy you're bringing to the world the more love you bring to the world and and you spread that to other people to want to be more themselves i don't want people to look at me and be like oh, i want to be like her I want people to look at me and be like, she's living the life she wants to live. And that makes me trust that I can maybe live the life that I want to live. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and the more we do that, like the, how can they stop a, a movement like that where, you, where you're your full self? The reason why they get us is because we're working these fuckboy jobs. We're tired constantly. We they are constantly bombarding us with negative news and it keeps us in a, in a mental state that's subdued basically. Uh, and so the more you can get yourself outside of that system, the more you can really identify what it was doing to you and how you can avoid it further mm -hmm. and how you can get around it. We don't need this shit. We don't need these fucking systems. It's obvious that this shit is antithetical to our fucking health, to our being. Mm -hmm. Uh, definitely to our ancestors. Definitely to our ancestors. And, and that's a good point too is, you know, I live my life to honor the struggle that my ancestors went through. I live my life as a person that I, you know, I, look, I, I think to myself, if y'all could see me now, y'all would be like, okay, I know I can make it through. You know what I'm saying? The, mm -hmm. the tools I have, the experiences that I've lived, I know that I was what, how was one of my ancestors' greatest wishes? Mm. And now I get to also create the world that I want to see for my kinfolk for when I'm an ancestor. And, and I think when more people start realizing that in this space and time right now, you're somebody's ancestor, I think people will start moving way differently mm. in, their, in their regular and daily lives because they want to, you want to honor that too, right? You want to honor those people and you want to make sure that they can get to a place that's higher than where you are right now. How did you put yourself in a space physically and or mentally to lead? Mm. Um, I've, I've told this story in a couple different spaces and, and I love to share it with you guys. But, you know, in college, I was super depressed, super sad. Um, 
I tried to kill myself. And, uh, you know, when it was happening and when I was going through all that, I kept seeing, I would close my eyes and I would kind of see this like path ahead of us, like lit up path. Kind of like, like Billy Jean movie, Billy, Billy Jean video or something, you know? Um, I would just keep saying, I would just keep kind of hearing like, you're meant to do something. Like mm. you, you have all this political knowledge. You, I like, I am so into politics. I understand the underhanded things that the, the, the movements that people make, the political, you know, leanings and all this stuff. I get all this stuff. Like I'm meant to do something. And I just remember thinking, I have no idea what the fuck that is or when the fuck that's going to show up. Mm-hmm. And I thought maybe I'd be able to kind of see it coming, <laughs> but I didn't. I didn't see it coming at all. I uh, left school, started taking an organizing course called Speak. That's how I met Shaka Macaulay. Uh, was still very much on my party mode. So knowing that I was about to do all this, like I, knowing that I was meant for this type of work, I, in my head, decided, okay, well, I'm gonna have the most fucking fun I can until that moment comes, right? Mm-hmm. So I was out, you know, partying. I was out, like, I was out, like, almost, like, six, five, six nights a week. I made a lot of friends in the city. Um, I kind of became a scene kid or whatever. Um, and, like, I remember Shaka being like, I didn't even know you were, like, this serious. I didn't know you were, like, this smart. Like, because I was like, because I didn't want you to know. At the time, I just wanted to be on my fuckboy shit. Like, and I didn't need you to know that I was a, an intelligent person because I knew that shit would come. Eventually, you you figure it out. From those moments when you were closing your eyes? Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh, no, this is, this is, like, you know, this is... Yeah, basically, yeah. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, I knew that that shit was going to come, and, and I kind of play dumb anyway sometimes because I just don't need people to, like... I'm cool with people underestimating me for the mm. most part, you know? Um, so uh, that stuff happened, and then, uh, you know, all these, all these moments started happening in Ferguson. Ferguson is right by. I have family who've organized in Ferguson for years. Um, and, uh, you know, we saw the people going out for, you know, the non-indictment for Dan Wilson. Um, and I remember the night that, this was right after Tamir Rice died. It was the night that Darren Wilson was not indicted. I was sitting at home at the time my little brother was 12 years old, same age as Tamir, crying, watching the news. Mm-hmm. He's asking me what's going on. And I'm telling him, I'm like, they're calling it a riot and it's not a riot, blah, blah, blah. And you know, 12 year old boys are like not affectionate kids, right? They're like, their little boys are like, ew, gross. My mom's telling him he needs to go to bed. I'm like, no, he needs to, he needs to watch this stuff, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, he can stay up for a little bit longer. Finally sent him to bed. Before he goes to bed, he gives me a kiss on the cheek. And I just fucking break down, you know? Um, and uh, I, I get on Twitter, I see people talking. I'm like, I need to get out of the house. I'm feeling, I have so much energy. I need to get out of the house. See people tweeting. They're like, my friend Montana's like, we're at Knock. We have like art supplies. We're watching TV. Like you could just come, take up space, do whatever you want, whatever you need. Um, I go up to my mom and said, "Mom, I need to use your car." She was like, "Nah, you can't use your use the car. You're like really upset. Like you need to go to sleep." Da-da-da-da. I'm like, "No, mom, I need to leave. I need to go." She's like, "No, dude. Like just go to bed." And finally, I literally don't know where the words came from, but I was like, "Grandma wants me to go." Like. Grandma's telling me to go. And she was like, she was like, 
you're manipulating me. <laughs> but she was like, but you can take the car. Just be back at this time. I was like, okay. I got in the car. When I got in the car, I turned the car on. And this song started on the radio right, right when I turned on the car. And uh, it was the song that I sang at my grandmother's funeral when I was eight years old. It started. And I have never heard that song on the radio. Like, I, like it's not a song they just be playing, you know? Yeah. Um, it was Mama by uh, Boyz II Men. Like, that's just not ever on the radio. And I just sat there and listened to it and cried. And I, I, I was before just Before you like, took off? Yeah, before mm, I left, yeah. I sat and listened to the whole thing. And I was like, I have no idea what the fuck's about to happen, but I know I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and that, an hour later is when I met Aja and Brianna and started planning shutting down the highway the next day and that's how it started and it started randomly and we kind of thought it was a one-off thing and it it snowballed you know hmm. Hmm. you uh other spaces were activated where you came across like other dope organizers activists mm -hmm. and y'all were like we got to keep this momentum up yeah what was that like early on process like <laughs> What, what, well, the, what challenges? The might first have come? process, the, it was really wild because, like, it was like two in the morning when we decided to do this. Yeah. And it was supposed to happen at four o'clock the next day. So at 2 a.m., I emailed like 10 people that I thought could be down and helpful. Right. And I was like, if you can, meet at 10 a.m. the next morning. And so I met with some people, and other people recommended other people to come to that meeting. So we had about maybe like nine people there. We started planning the route, what we we're gonna do. By noon, I was like, okay, everybody here texts like 10 people. Uh, <laughs> and we had, by 2.30, we had about 40 people who are willing to be marshals. Um, and then by four o'clock, uh, oh, at that meeting when we had the 40 people come, they had an uh, undercover police officer come to the meeting. <laughs> Which was funny because everybody knew everybody. So, and this dude was just like trying to shake hands with people, and everybody was like, "You do not fit in here, bro." <laughs> um, uh, by 4:30, we were carrying out the plan. We were, we had everybody in vests, and mm -hmm. we were out on the streets. Yeah, that was kind of the for Minneapolis. Usually Minneapolis is behind in virtually everything uh, in terms of uh, just next level, taking things generationally or otherwise to another level in terms of protest, in terms yeah. of shutting shit down, all yeah. of that. that. That definitely was where the city of Minneapolis who followed y'all lead was, that was a moment of like, we, we can never go backwards from here yeah. as a community in the Twin Cities. Oh, it was nuts. We kept trying to, we originally planned for that march to go a half a mile because yeah. it was cold. Yeah, yeah. It was like 35 degrees or something. We had planned for people to march a half a mile. We were like, maybe people will march a mile. People marched six miles that night. We could not get people to stop. We kept trying to break up the protests and people would keep going and kept mm -hmm. walking. Um, and that's when I realized like, oh, like I knew the energy was here behind us. I knew people wanted to put their time towards something, but I just did not realize how much that space was necessary until mm -hmm. that moment when I was like, these mm -hmm. people won't stop. Two cars ran into the crowd that day. One person, their foot got ran over and other protesters had to lift the car off of them. 
The second time, I watched a dude, a van run into somebody and the dude just jumped on the hood and held on for 50 feet till the dude stopped and guy just hopped off and flicked him off and kept walking. You know, kept <laughs> like, on going. Yeah, like I was like, it was like, there was no stopping it. Yeah. People were trying to terrify everyone and put this like fear, oh, you can't, you can't be in the streets. Mm-hmm. Everybody was fine. Like, it, it was bananas. I ain't never seen that shit. When I saw that van hit that dude, I thought, I was like, oh my God, I just saw, I just saw it again. I was like, oh my God. And dude was just like, hey, I wish y'all, y'all, this is a podcast. I wish y'all could see what I'm doing right now. (laughs) And then when it hit its climax, obviously there was moments and some of them were dangerous, but like, were you, I mean, you could have been subconscious by then because this is all new for everybody. But was there any moment of like, I can't believe this is actually happening? I mean, when... Um, when the white supremacists came up and shot people, that was when I knew we were in a whole different thing. And, um, you know, that's, so we're not talking about like a moral, we're not, we're not talking about morals here, you know, like this is, this is something that I think in that moment, like I said, I knew that it was always a possibility, but to see everyone else and the movement shaken because now, okay, now you're realizing like, this shit is not a fucking joke and it's not fucking cute. Hmm. Like, we may all uh, uh, come at this like, you know, whatever, but the other side is, they're ready mm-hmm. and they've mm-hmm. been ready. So to come at this lackadaisically. It's like you're always ready when you know you're more, you're the majority. You're always ready. Like- and you're always ready when you know you're tr- gonna try to enforce some shit. When you're gonna want to stay the majority, you gonna yeah. stay the you gonna stay mm-hmm. ready. So, um, I think that was a huge moment. It it was definitely, it was definitely a very traumatic thing. I was just telling somebody the other day that even now sometimes I get shook when I see uh, pickup trucks driving Certainly. erratically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or if yeah, if a pickup truck like pulls up next to me, I get I get super triggered. Um, yeah, because it just it just changed the whole energy of the of the occupation, and and it it became a point where like you know there would be families coming with their children, and they're just trying to show their kids like this is how you be politically involved, and then we hear some shit like some people are trying to like some white supremacists are coming, and we have to fucking like insulate these children with our bodies, yeah. or like send them running to their cars to leave because we don't know if we can ensure their safety because of other people that want to attack basically what basically like a a communal Mm. space this the the occupation was tents of free food for anybody that came free clothing free blankets free jackets anything anyone needed warmth paper towels for anything you could come up to the fourth precinct it's it's essentially we fashioned that occupation off of what police <laughs> what police stations should be you know mm. a place for people to stay warm mm-hmm. a place for people to get fed a place for people to get taken care of a place for people to find community we- and you know, that's that's what people were attacking. Like, that's the crazy yeah. part. Like, that's what you're attacking. And that's, that's how you know they don't want, you know. <laughs> people attack, terrorize, violence. You attack more often than not having to do with the 
with the person being attacked or the victim being having to do with at least one of their identities, right? So people are attacked with being black, mm-hmm. queer, woman, gay, trans. Those are identities where if someone's a terrorist and wants to commit a violent act, I'm going to try to kill you because you're a woman, mm-hmm. period, right? Mm-hmm. So they're trying to kill you because you're an organizer. So and, and or, I'm queer and, and I'm and, black exactly. and I'm a woman. And so that's I mean, more like, identities. all the motherfucking exactly. identities. But I mean, in that moment, they're, they already want to kill you, right? Mm-hmm. Then you add on that layer of organize, or, organizers like an identity. Yeah. To be targeted yeah. is what I'm saying. You're putting, yourself to be, you're putting yourself up to be targeted for sure. I've yeah. gotten so many death threats. Yeah. Mm. I have gotten a death fax. Facts? A fax. F-A-X, y'all. Yeah, somebody sent a fax to my office uh, with a death threat on it one day. <laughs> I mean... Like, that's, that's deep. He had to look up that number. It wasn't readily available. <laughs> Who faxes these days? Oof. I don't even know. We, we, when we got it, we were like, the fax, there's a fax machine in this bitch? And in Minneapolis, like, this more prevalent identity of adding, you know, for so many people becoming organizers in this groundswell, like it being so young in the Twin Cities, like what were, and you being one of the leaders, like what did you have to be careful about because so many people were following your lead? What did you have to be careful about in terms of carving out like a new path for a community? Mm. Um, I think one of the things that I took a lot of responsibility on was making sure I didn't burn out Mm. and being very vocal about taking up that space. Um, I had burnt out once before in college when I was kind of talking about that earlier. That was was essentially kind of burnout. And I had worked in the nonprofit world and gotten burnt out and and I was really over it. (laughs) Um, And so I decided that, you know, if all these young people were about to go into the movement, right, and I know that I don't have the motherfucking solutions for what's going to solve this shit. But I do know that one of these young ass motherfuckers does have these fucking ideas. And so I was really intentional about making sure people knew what I needed to do to take up space, to take care of myself mm-hmm. and heal. And also, I wasn't going to let people guilt me for how I take my self-care and how I heal myself. Um, and I did that as an example because I know that these kids are about to watch a lot of organizers run themselves into the ground unhealthily. And we need them around. And so if I can set that example where they don't even learn the, you know, the bad habits of an organizer, if you don't even learn those to begin with, then you're going to be sustainable for years to come and you're going to be able to do a lot more and you're gonna be able to enjoy it more, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so like around when I started doing, you know, this organizing work, I also started hosting shows and dance parties and stuff. And I did that because I wanted my friends to feel like they didn't have to be an idea of a person to be an activist or to care about issues. I was like, we need to have fun. I'm not about to sit here and act like I go home and read fucking textbooks every night, you know? Like, so the more joy that I can bring into my life that helps me feel good about myself and helps me take a break from the mental anguish that is, you know, today, I'm gonna do that. 
And so I feel like that's a lot of the reason why actions were really successful because people didn't, you know, people felt comfortable bringing themselves to the actions and not being like, well, I don't care enough about this or I don't like look like this or I don't read this person. I don't follow these, you know, Twitter people like you don't need any of that. If you want to be there, you deserve to be there. Um, Also, people were coming into it self-conscious because they, you know, they weren't like in a, whatever, certain interwoke circles mm-hmm, and they came in and mm-hmm. some people just would probably even give up mm-hmm. before they started mm-hmm. because of that. And that's a symptom. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a symptom of us martyring people. Like, how are we going to have like the next MLK if we're constantly trying to compare people to MLK, which is like, we don't think of him as a person anymore. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That dude is like a saint, you know? Like, yeah. um, and so when we, when we, when we martyr people like that, we're, we're, it's a way of hindering people from believing that they can, you know, have that impression on folks. Like people like Mother Teresa, you know what I'm saying? Like we idealize these people and these people obviously deserve praise, yeah. but are, are we doing it to the point to keep people, like, you know what I'm saying? Or is it yeah. as effective as we really want it to be? Or is it creating this impossible fucking idea to live up to, you know? Do we even want another MLK? Do we even? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. We don't. We don't. We want the we want the new shit. We want that new new. But yeah. but you get what I'm saying though. Like people can't even begin to think of themselves right. in in that way. Like oh, because ha- there hasn't been. We have you know national organizers and national people on the scene, advocates, activists. But we haven't had that one person who can rally a hundred thousand people like you know what i'm saying like we don't have that voice yet and we have more dope ass people than him that's true like we have a hundred times more doper people than martin not legacy wise but just like the visions the ambition right you know so something's getting in the way right and that and if you recall at the beginning of the movement, it was there was this phrase everybody would say, like, we're not a leaderless movement, we're a leader-full movement. You like how I did that? <laughs> <laughs> oh. And that was the whole mindset. Um, and I agree with that, but I'm, I'm a very dichotomous person. I feel both sides all the time, and, and part of me feels like there's going to come a time where we're going to need we're gonna need a voice. We're gonna have to have someone to follow because it's gonna be a person that can inspire people to really do that. You know what I'm saying? Who has like a in in a way some kind of invincible exactly. burnout, like like immune to burnout. I think right? about what MLK does all the he didn't time, never burned and I was like, I was like, this man was insane. Like yeah. I like this is yeah 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 yeah. I like, mean, people tried to you force him on to relax, really, yeah, and he was like. Uh, not till I die. Yeah, yeah. Like and, and and the hundred dope, like the, the hundred brilliant ones of us, ninety nine of us ain't got that gene. No. We can still be dope. Yeah, we don't yeah. have to have the yeah, gene, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, ugh. but back to like you curating joy because you're not just curating a party; it's still organizing, so it connects all of that. Mm-hmm. And that intersectionality is why. I literally, I don't, I don't, I don't get out too much, but I, I fuck with situations, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. I fuck with that, but the, you know, early on when you said I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna curate these spaces of joy, partying and fun, and all of that, 
What were the conversations like? Because again, the movements new in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. So even though there's a music scene, mm-hmm. the intersectionality of the movement and music mm-hmm. wasn't necessarily prevalent mm-hmm. in terms of mm-hmm. public spaces. Yeah. So what were the conversations where you have were you having with some of the dope artists around to, to essentially recruit them to do some something amazing? Well, okay. So there's a couple of different conversations I was having. One side, I had people who were like, "Oh, you were doing all this movement stuff because you just wanted to get famous." Like they looked mm-hmm. at me doing this other type of thing as like, they're the people that believe you have to be a certain type of person to be an activist, right? Like these stereotypes. Um, and so I had to reconcile that a bunch because I knew damn well I wasn't trying to get famous, but I was like, if I get on, that is just God's will. Like, yeah. <laughs> like no, I'm just playing. But like, you know what I'm saying though? I'm like, if you're good at what you do, like people are going to know, you know what I'm saying? Like, and I want to be good at what I do. I don't want to be famous, but I do want to be very good at what I do. Um, so I don't even believe in like celeb- celebrities and bullshit anyways. But, um, uh, I mean, Minneapolis, we're really lucky that a lot of the artists are very activisty. Like we obviously come, we are, uh, you know, Rhyme Sayers is a huge part of, of Minneapolis, the Minneapolis scene. And most of their artists rap from a political point of view. Um, and I saw that as a huge attribute to being in Minneapolis. I knew that Minneapolis was going to be more successful with doing these certain types of actions. I engineered these actions specifically around the fact that in Minnesota, people want to be perceived as progressive, people want to be perceived as woke, and I use that to my advantage at any point I could. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I know that these motherfuckers, most of them ain't actually as progressive as they think they are, but I can use what they feel like the perception of being progressive is against them to do to do stuff for the greater good for, for the, the greater, greater good, good for the greater good and 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 that left us we were in a position to do so much more than a lot of other cities in America because most other cities you know if you in the south they don't give a shit Mm-mm. you know what i'm saying like New York, you get some of that, but New York spread out. LA. And it's more, cor- LA, New York is more corrupt. Exactly. So those powerful corruption yeah. forces are, woo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and they're spread out. People don't like go different yeah. places and like, you know what I'm saying? They don't like leave their, their either towns or I mean their boroughs or, you know, yeah. their yeah. neighborhoods in LA. Um, so uh, getting people to like kind of buy into that, some people were like really, not feeling it and I, and I remember one time somebody was like oh, I've heard about this this is called like third space organizing or some some shit like that I was like okay tight like <laughs> I guess it is a different type of organizing I just you know but and then but talk about some of these like which artists did you like feel the most natural organic connections with on like fast tracking this this cultivation of spaces, right? Mm. You know. Well, the first person to like have me really host a show and like have me be, you know, kind of a part of like creating the show was Tip. Um, and you said Tip. Yeah, Tip okay. with Ten Eyes. Yeah, DJ Tip. Um, we started working on the Love Below, which is something that I felt like was definitely like very much me. The Love Below is one of my favorite albums. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an R&B dance night, hip hop dance night. I was like, yes, yes, yes. Um, and then from there, you know, me and Akina have been friends for years, way before she started DJing. 
and me and Akina have a natural like bond and a natural like really good working relationship. And so that's how like me and her had this residency at the Nomad, Silk Haze. That's where we really started to like be intentional about the space. Tip obviously is has been intentional about it, creating his space, but um, that was the first time where it was like, this is a space cultivated by black women and you can tell. And I even didn't know, I didn't realize that there could be that much of a difference in how people feel in a space or how comfortable people are in a space or how loose people get in a space. Until you saw it and felt yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And shit came out of me. I think I pussy popped on a handstand one time at that, at that residency, which I don't do that. Um, <laughs> certainly not in public. Um, so, uh, you know, and that was a natural evolution to the situation and realizing that, you know, people aren't gonna put women on, but they don't realize that that's what's on. Fucking history, <laughs> fucking history, y'all. The first situation maybe about two years ago. Uh-huh. I'm in that, I'm in there. And it was like 15 minutes in, it was already popping. Mm-hmm. For me though, 15 minutes in, I'm like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. There's about 20 women on stage with a full house in first half. Yeah. This shit has never fucking happened. Yeah. Ever. Oh, and I think the crowd was like 70% women, 30% men. Mm-hmm. And girls were throwing their bras up on stage at us. Like, I had, one of my homegirls came up to me and she goes, girl, it is a motherfucking sex den in this bitch right now. She was like, she like people were just so comfortable, you know what I'm saying? Like, and it's so rare to like see people move their bodies how they want to, not like how they like. Oh, I'm being watched. I need to look cool, so I'm gonna kind of dance. You know, Minnesota people too. People don't. People just be bobbing their head. No, motherfuckers was taking their shirts off, and you know, throwing shit on stage and and rubbing and touching and all this stuff, and but all consensually. Um, and I and I had I had two my guy friends come in, I like walked them in through the door and I remember I turned around and I watched their face as they like walked into First Avenue like towards the dance floor and they were like, is this the promised land? <laughs> I was like, I was like, oh shit, like we really did some shit. And yeah, yeah and again, that's when you realize like, oh my gosh, like, like if you wanna have a good time, make women feel comfortable. Like, surprise motherfucker. Like, <laughs> and give them the fucking yeah, stage and yeah, pay them. Yeah. Give them a stage, and if dudes are acting up, kick them out. Like, how how long were we? How many times did a woman tell somebody, "Oh, this dude touched my butt," and the security's like, mm, "Okay." And how does that make that woman feel? How does that shift how the rest of the room feels? And how, and you know what I'm saying? That that goes into the energy of everything else. It's like yeah. once once people feel safe. You are doing some whole, we're talking on a whole new level of like engagement, a whole new level of enjoyment, a whole new level of, you know, just sharing space. And for the ones that are organizers and activists at places like Clituation, that might, that might give them another three months of exactly. life, of organizer exactly. life, you know what I mean? Exactly, exactly. And two years later, was it the two year anniversary? Oh, it's coming up. Oh, okay. so. What was the weekend though that the last one was? Oh, Other than was it was your birthday. Set. Yeah, it was yeah. my birthday, and so, it was the Soundset pre-party, yeah, the sound and it was set. the first time they had all oh women. They never have 
a lot of women for for the sound separate party. The 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 first situation was historic as fuck. But the energy at the, the soundset clip situation. That one was nuts. That I mean, was you didn't have to be on no drugs. You were high. Yeah. Yeah. You were high. Yeah. And that was wild because that wasn't even like all situation, you know, attendees. That wasn't all people. That, that was a lot of people who came into town for a sound set, had never heard of no situation, probably have seen very few women perform on stage. Um, and so we had to... It was interesting because we I had to like kind of give put rules out and kind of dictate to the crowd, okay, this is what we expect, this is what this space is for. You need to know this, like, white man, I love you. You you guys are great, but this you're not supposed to be in the front right now. Like this is for femmes. Dudes were just like staring at me, and I was like, Y'all, this is a party. We all participate in the party. I'm not here to just entertain you. Like I'm not here to just have you watch me. I ain't. Come, I'm not no dancer, you know. <laughs> I'm here to have fun, and I'm supposed to have fun with you. So you gotta it's time to move your body. <laughs> it was nuts. That was the best performance of my life. I'm not gonna try. That was my mom came and my mom came and danced on stage. <laughs> But she was dancing the whole night. She, my mom, my mom, okay, so my brother and my baby cousin came and visited just for this weekend. And my mom was telling my baby cousin, like, look, I'm putting on these sneakers because we about to dance tonight, girl. She was like, I, you can, she was like, you can wear your cute shoes if you want to. But <laughs> she was like, but I'm finna move my body. She was like, I'm not messing up my shoes. I'm finna dance. And I remember being on stage and looking off to the left mm -hmm, and seeing, seeing, seeing a dance circle and being like, oh, tight, my friend's dancing the dance circle. And it's my mom in the middle of the damn dance circle. And I see one of my friends, Franz Diego, is just in the corner like, that's Misha's mom! Just like, just like having a, a meltdown. <laughs> and I call my mom up on stage and my mom starts dancing on stage. And I didn't tell nobody that was my mom. And at the end of it, I just go, if y'all want to know where a bad bitch comes from, yep. this is how you make a bad bitch. And I was like, this is my mom. And the whole crowd went, <gasps> and then they just they went, lost their shit. They lost their shit. <laughs> I was a witness. It was nuts. That was the best birthday. Oh my gosh. That was the best birthday. But you see in the organizing world, like they try to drill that into something. Yeah, people. they want you. I mean, that is a culture, a, a burnout culture for a reason. Mm -hmm. They're utilizing young people's optimism about, you know, how much they can change the world, paying them nothing, and wearing them out until. They're disenchanted and they just go work for the fucking man. And they go get a regular ass job because they're like, I just want a car and a fucking place to sleep and a family. This, You know what I'm saying? Like, and and all that other stuff goes out the window because that energy that you had was used for something that you realized wasn't doing what you thought you were doing. To get not your favorite candidate elected. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and then with that turnover, you you don't get to build on it, right? Because yeah. like if you keep yeah. people keep leaving, yeah. rightfully so, because yeah. they've been burned by it and yeah. burned out. Those people didn't get to you know elevate whatever exactly. they were doing. Exactly, yeah. exactly. They mm -hmm. never get to hit like they're. Yeah, I've worked with so many yeah. nonprofits that were in cycles of that. Yeah, and there would be really good years and okay years, and and it just went like that every 
six, eight, ten years or something like that. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's and that's a symptom of the nonprofit industrial complex. The, the nonprofit world was created out of a fear of women joining the workforce. They created it in the '70s because they didn't want women to be lawyers and doctors. They were like, we're gonna we're gonna create a new type of job. Um, it's also taking the momentum of all the hippies and all the protests in the 60s and 70s and being like, okay, this is how we monetize this shit. This is how we make sure we can manage where people's energy is going. This is how we can keep people feeling like they're doing something and yet and still feeling like they're grinding up against a wall, you know? Um, And... That is just a reality of a lot of this work, you know? That's why these companies have huge endowments to mm-hmm. f- and have major nonprofits. And if we look at how much money those places really have and how much the budget is to run those nonprofits, you will see that it's just a place to hold money. I feel like you, we've been talking a lot about what we've, what you've been, what you've been doing and I want to I want to hear about what you're doing now. What's going on? <laughs> I am doing all types of stuff. Um, and that's just like my personality, I guess. Um, I live in L.A. I've been living in L.A. for a little over six months now. Um, I am enjoying it quite a bit. Mm. Um, I have been in a lot of new, really dope spaces, met a lot of cool people. Um, I've been DJing, I have been um, managing a a food truck, um, which has been really fun in like very California. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have been uh, working on a film and working on a screenplay, um, and I recently just applied to a program at the American Film Institute I am hoping I get into. You know, it's definitely a different energy out here, and it's really beautiful to see a lot of people that want to um, collaborate and build and, you know, kind of be on that, and it's a fascinating-ass place. Uh, Yeah, and, like, L.A. is crazy because there's just kind of, like, people that you admire around every corner, and if you're cool with, like, you know, if you're not really a believer in the cult of celebrity mm-hmm. people are all pretty decent for yeah. the most part so you know being out here I, I had no idea what being out here actually living out here was going to be like but it's a fucking adventure yeah. and it's definitely a huge challenge but it's a challenge that I'm meeting you know mm-hmm. head on and it's, it's difficult but I'm really grateful to be able to be here and you know are there any activism circles in LA that are piquing your curiosity or energizing you? I um, I have yet to really move to um, organizing in activist spaces in LA, and that's because of a couple different reasons. Um, I obviously want to approach a space, um, you know, as respectfully as possible, um, and you know. Yeah, I don't want to take up space and, and take up other people's space and, you know, take over what time they put into what they're doing. Um, also, I'm really trying to get used to L.A., and and that's a challenge, you know. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a car for, like, the first, like, four or five months I was here. Mm-hmm. Like, that's 
crazy, you know? Um, and so just like getting everything in my life settled is that take that takes precedent over you know this other thing because that that could set some that could set me up for something really dangerous that I'm mm -hmm. you know that LA is the last place you want to be in right and and like a, right. just a day-to-day -day living right. vulnerability you know right like I'm just trying to make it right now mm -hmm. you feel me mm -hmm. and and sometimes I do feel guilty about that there was a shooting in North Minneapolis two days ago mm -hmm. and uh I really just didn't ha I didn't have the energy to, you know, tweet about that and talk about that. And it's like, you know, one of the first times I'm taking a step back. And maybe people will feel some type of way about that because I'm in California now. I'm not in Minnesota, whatever, whatever. Well, how but do you feel? Personally, I feel like it's um, right. what I need to do for myself right now. It's, um, really tough and I think that there are different tactics at hand with the with this killing I think I think it was something in retaliation for um, the St. Paul mayor uh, Carter saying the day before that he wasn't going to add 50 cops to the police force the next day a black man gets killed and that hasn't happened in how long and I'm starting to see these patterns and I'm realizing that they're trying to trap me into giving my energy and pulling me out of my self-care without my permission mm -hmm. and <laughs> you know what I'm saying and and I'm just not falling for it anymore I, and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna support how I can and I know that people will uh get down yeah they got they they have to find time and understanding to to realize that that needs to happen sometimes sure sure well, <clears throat> so how do you balance cynicism and hope uh, <laughs> in this chapter of your journey, life's journey? Oh, uh, shit. I don't know. You got to find value in the little things, I guess. It's fucking sunny almost every damn day here. <laughs> like, I even when I'm in traffic, sometimes, you know what I'm saying, it sucks. But, like, the sun fucking trees flowers and that's anywhere you can find those things anywhere you can find those moments where you're like damn the sun is hitting my skin just right right now you know what i'm saying yeah and being able to start to account for those moments and find them little moments of peace you don't realize that you're giving yourself a huge break um and you're healing yourself in those moments so that's I don't know, that's what I'm doing. Um, yeah. You know, I'm kicking it. I'm seeing new things, yeah. trying new things, you know? And that shit, yeah, that, that shit fascinates me. It, my, it piques my curiosity and that's what brings me happiness, I guess, so. What are you, uh, what are you tired of hearing? Yo, I'm really tired of black men defending sexes and I'm just really tired of black men defending other black men that have hurt women because it's so obvious to me the contradiction in it that it's almost painful that they can't see it. Like, if what in your mind 
can justify saying a racist deserves no sympathy, no remorse, but a rapist deserves sympathy and remorse other than the fact that you see yourself in that person. You see part you see part of you in that person. And and it boggles my mind that that self-awareness doesn't exist, but I, you know, but obviously I'm a person that lives at so many different intersections. I have to see everything from a different point of view at all fucking times. So, I'm tired of I'm tired of that. I'm ready for black men to realize, like to really try to explain to me what's worse, what makes a racist worse than a rapist. Like, I, like if somebody could tell me for real, could somebody, if somebody could actually explain that to me, I, I would love to hear the reasoning behind that. But if like, if you think about that, what the fuck you gonna say, you know? What do you want our listeners to know? Listeners to know, um, I want you guys to know that uh, if you're dealing with trauma or pain or hurt or you're like confused or you're sad or you're mad that it's okay and that you're justified in your feelings and that um, you can turn that emotion into um, strength and power um, but don't feel guilty for needing your solitude and don't feel guilty for taking time to yourself because those moments are important and uh, they build you up. What arts are you currently taking in that's re-energizing you, keeping you high? What art am I currently taking in? Mm. Well, we're in L.A., so um, right now we're at the Incorporated Studio uh, fashion brand. Um, this is definitely some art I've been taking in. Their work is magnificent. Um, definitely check them out. Um, so like fashion and films, you know what I'm saying? I've been seeing a lot of movies since I've been here. Um, and now we get like, you know, special releases. And now I get to go to like special release movies and shit like that and like get to see directors talk and mm -hmm. I get to see you know authors talk and um, yeah so it's kind of like just a whole new world going to different gallery openings and different musicians different scenes I'm, I, I'm like constantly checking out different scenes and different places just seeing what people are working with seeing how many people they can get in seeing how they're um, how much they're charging like I'm just like just literally trying to take in. I'm I'm learning about every little scene. What's the ratio of dudes to chicks? You know, how much did they spend on their sound system? Did they care enough to have a lighting person? Like all this shit. And I'm going to you know fucking dubstep shows, house shows, <laughs> you know, hip hop, rap, like across the fucking board. I haven't been to a country show yet, but low key I got invited to a country show by a dude from Minnesota that lives in LA. Um, <laughs> might have to try it. Uh, um, yeah, so, you know, there's definitely anything you want is out. Maybe not anything, but there's a lot of different things out here for well, you. Uh, we're in town for one more night. <laughs> one more night. Yeah. Misha, we appreciate you sitting down with us. 
in LA, your new Absolutely. home. Thank you. That was really fun, guys. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Misha. Thank you so much. Thanks for hosting us. Thanks for taking us out, getting uh, some food with us after the interview. We had such a great time uh, visiting. And uh, as always, Weapon of Choice Podcast is a special menu production. The Weapon of Choice theme music is by Renee Copeland. Thank you so much, Renee, as always. It is a treasure getting to feature your art every episode of our show. That's right. And uh, we always got to leave the listeners with a question. What art are you taking in? What art is pushing you forward? Challenging your ideas of the world? Making you a better person out there? Send those answers to our email. Weaponofchoicefans at gmail.com. That's weaponofchoicefans at gmail.com. Hey, if you've got some, if you got some artists that you're listening to that, that you want us to interview... Send, send us an email there as well. We want to hear from you. We are still trying to ramp up our trips and our excursions to other cities. So it doesn't matter where they're at. They could be, they could be uh, all over the United States. They could be international. We want to hear about them. Uh, we yeah. want to start our research as soon as possible. And we want to try to get them on the show. Stay tuned. Keep listening. Keep telling your friends. We really need you to do, do, you know, we need to be, we need you to be like, Let's just call let's call y'all share soldiers, right? We need you to share the shit out of our content. And you can start wherever you'd like. But you know, we have our Weapon of Choice podcast page on Facebook. We get a lot of activity there. Like the page. You see us post, especially when we release an episode. You see that post? Just share it. You can comment. You can you can you can show us some love and comment when you share it, but at the very least just share it. It really helps. Um Instagram at Weapon of Choice Podcast, right? Twitter at Weapon Choice Pod. We don't do a ton on Twitter, but you know, Pussy Riot when they posted their episode on Twitter, it gave us a lot of uh, new listeners. And uh, however you like to spread the word, we are all for it. We appreciate it. Text your friends the links. Text them the SoundCloud links. We're on SpecialMenuProductions.com. That's our home. And we would love to hear from you as always. So you can email us or hit, hit us up on any of those social media outlets. Let's take advantage of this little family we got, the family we want to grow. And we know you're listening and we really appreciate that. So, uh, you know, we'd love to hear from you in any way, shape or form. That's no doubt. Hey, this is Renee Copeland. And thanks for listening to another episode of Weapon of Choice podcast. Here's a song of mine called Indigo Party. Enjoy. Enjoy.